Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Larry Ruvalis, CEO of IntegraCare. The Wexford, Pennsylvania-based company has 18 communities in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. IntegraCare was among the senior living companies recently featured on the best senior living list from U.S. News and World Report. And Ruvelis says he hopes that the ratings will help consumers separate quality operators from those that might only have beautiful buildings. A pretty building is not equal to great care and great life and a great team. And so I hope what these rankings mean for residents and families is that it gets closer to what they really want to buy. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. Visit Senior Housing News to view this year's winners. And now here's my interview with Larry Ravellis, CEO of IntegraCare. Larry Rivellis, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. So I guess I wanted to start with just sort of an update. You know, obviously it's a it's a challenging time to be in the senior living business. How have the last few months gone? You know, where is IntegraCare at with its recovery from COVID right now? And how are things like occupancy move-ins and uh, demand trending? Uh, so Jim, good to, uh, good to be here. Occupancy is up. I think we're seeing leads up across the board pretty solidly across our portfolio. Uh, but it's kind of a tale of two cities when it comes to conversion of those leads to move-ins. Uh, some communities have seen move-ins grow nicely, but others, particularly those with the toughest staffing challenges, uh, move-ins haven't grown correspondingly and we're working you know, hard to address that. I think, you know, I think my sense is that in the most staffing challenged communities, that when customers walk around, they get a sense of, of stress in the staff or the salesperson you know, may feel concerned about the staffing issues and the salesperson have, has some difficulty in conveying confidence. And then when they sense that, the customers walk back out. And it's, it's one of the many reasons we need to deepen the labor pool uh, in our industry for hourly staffing. But other communities where we've you know, been able to work that out, I think we're seeing solid progress occupancy-wise. I might actually sneak in some questions about staffing. That's that's a good point. Very, very big industry topic, I think, this year and every other year, basically. Before we talk about that, though, I know that you started your career in senior housing at Sunrise Senior Living in, in 2003, obviously a very different world for senior housing back then. But you've been around to see a few market cycles. So I have heard many, many folks, countless folks really tell me that this is by far the most challenging time in their career. And and I'm assuming you probably agree with that. But, uh, you know, h- I guess, how do you see these current challenges stacking up against some of the things that you've encountered before? Do you see any similarities or anything that you might have learned in the past that might apply now? So I think I'd separate between operational challenges and sales and marketing challenges. Operationally, it's definitely the most challenging I've ever seen. As you said, I've been in the industry since 2003. I've seen a number of different situations. And between the, the staffing challenges and COVID, it's rough. It's, you know, teams are tired, wearing a mask uh, all day, takes some of the fun out of work. You know, I think operationally, it's definitely a challenge. Um, sales and marketing wise, it's hard, but it's not the hardest that I've seen. I think the, the early 2000s were rough in many markets because there had been a lot of overbuilding and there's just too much competition relative to what was at that stage a pretty early demand pool. I think 2008 uh, was pretty hard because the housing market seized up and uh, seniors couldn't sell their homes very easily or for the price they wanted, uh, particularly for IL that hurt things. I think early 2020, you know, sales really froze uh, and move-ins froze because of COVID. So I think those were harder, 
they were shorter and there was kind of a clear end to them. But no, I mean, I think, you know, sales and marketing wise, it's a challenge, but it's basically about blocking and tackling. It's about, you know, getting your salespeople trained up, getting them to understand what it is the customers want to buy, you know, doing the social media, doing the sales and the uh, things that you want to do from a digital standpoint in terms of reputation and online reviews. I mean, it's a challenge, but it's, it's nothing that we can't work through. So you and I talked not long ago for a different story that I had worked on. U.S. News and World Report had released these ratings not long ago, these best senior living ratings. Very interesting, basically sort of a, a list. I think it was 3,000, a little bit more than 3,000 communities had sort of signed up to compete for this accolade, or I guess compete is the wrong word, but see if they could if they could get this this rating. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think only a little bit over uh, 1,200 or so ended up actually making the the accolade. Some of Integrity Care's communities had earned the accolade. So I guess to start with Larry, and I know I've asked you this question recently, so I should probably remember this. How many communities do you guys have? And then can you remind me how many communities you had that were on that best in your living list? Yeah, I, I'm incredibly proud of these teams, Tim. So we had 15 communities that were surveyed. That's how many that was, we ran at the time the surveys were done. And 12 of the 15 won the U.S. News uh, report. That's well above the industry average, well above the one in three that you just said. I mean, 12 of the 15 of our communities won uh, the U.S. News Award. So I'm, I'm really, and it's mainly about the dedicated team members. I mean, we have some amazing, talented, experienced, caring people they're working incredibly hard through through you know a challenging past couple of years. They connect with the residents and they connect with the families, and and it showed. I mean, they provide a good quality of life. Uh, not perfect. There's the, the survey showed the areas that we can uh, can improve in, but certainly relative to others in our industry and just generally the you know the feeling of the residents, the families were were positive overwhelmingly. And I'm I'm really blessed to work with. With that group, and you know, I'd like to think that as a management company, we, you know, we play a role in you know recruiting and retaining those great, dedicated, hardworking people, and you know, giving them the the resources and policy you know to to do the job well. You know, I think our brand, which I think had something to do with the results, uh, is built around a three dimensional focus. So we've got team members that we focus on, and residents and families, and you know, for the team members, we're working to create engagement. And for the residents, we want to give them respect and for the families, peace of mind. And these are nice words, but, you know, you got to operationalize it. And, you know, there's a number of things that we do to turn that into reality. And I'll go into it if you want, but ultimately all that support and all those resources and those directions and focus come down to does the local team do, are they capable and inspired to do the work that, uh, you know, of taking care of residents well. And I'm really proud of those teams that want it. Yeah. I, so I actually want to ask you, one of the things that I, I'm very curious about is specifically on the community level, what can you do that separates a community like one of the communities that won these accolades versus one that maybe didn't? You know, what, what are there, is there anything on the operational ground level that you can kind of point to and say, ah, this is the difference? I'll give a couple of examples. I think we all know that having team members that are committed to getting through challenges is, you know, is, is an important part of you know, good service. And at least for team members of ours who want to grow in their careers, we have a fairly robust career pathing process for them. For uh, for the hourly team members, uh, we have something called the MAP program, which allows them within a particular job to get recognized at the bronze level or the civil level or the gold level for various, you know, training and accomplishments and leadership uh, that they can provide. And they get, you know, 
recognition for it. They get pay bumps for achieving those higher levels. I think for the, uh, and so, you know, if you're someone who is, is a professional who wants to grow over time in your job, it's nice to work at a place that, that, you know, supports you and recognizes that. So I think that's, you know, people in the military will tell you that it's the non-commissioned officers who really, you know, run a good ship or run a good uh, squad. And I think same thing in our buildings, it's the kind of veteran team members who know what they're doing, can show the young folks the ropes who, you know, we need to call, we, we are cultivating and nurturing and growing and recognizing through stuff like this. I think for our wellness directors, we, uh, you know, we have for LPNs who want to grow to become kind of the next level up, which is a wellness director in a community. We have our wellness director and training program. So again, career paths for them. I think for our, our managers, many of our managers have been promoted from within. So we take pretty seriously the idea that if you are good and you work hard and you, you, you know, rise to greater responsibility, that you will find those opportunities at Integra Care. So I think that has something to do with it. I think for you know, residents and families, there's certain sort of baseline requirements, like, like answering call bells, you know, quickly and effectively and reliably. We put incredible emphasis in this company on, you know, responding to call bells and making sure that's, that's at the heart of, in my mind, the value proposition of moving to particularly assisted living and memory care is that when you need help, you know, you can count on it being there. And call bells are in many ways, you know, both the bellwether of that, but also the literal manifestation of that. And so, so again, when you, when you're there, when people, when people ring for you, they tend to be happy, and that then reflects itself in things like the U.S. News survey. There are so many different, I think, qualifiers, uh, at least out there for all kinds of products and goods and services, not just senior living. But within senior living, I know that there are a few. There's J.D. Power. You have the the one that I think is, is in Fortune magazine each year. That is, of course, I think, a more employee-focused, great place to work. But regardless, there are different, it seems like, quality measures that if I'm a consumer, I can pay attention to. So this is yet another one. What do you think this one means for consumers, for residents, for their families? And I'm also curious, since since being on this list, have you noticed, I don't know, a bump in web traffic or consumers who have noticed and accordingly reached out? So in terms of what this means to you know, prospective residents and, and, and families, I think and I hope that what most residents want when they move into a senior housing community is a good quality of life and a good quality of care. I think that that's a hard thing to get at in many ways. And so oftentimes they use the building as a proxy for, for care, right? If it's a beautiful building, the care must be good. Well, I think those of us in the industry know that, you know, a pretty building is not equal to, you know, great care and great life and a great, you know, team. And so I think, I hope what this, these rankings mean for, you know, for residents and families is that it gets closer to what they really want to buy, what they really want to get at when they move in. Have we seen a, a, an increase in inquiries? Um, it's the awards were just announced and we're just starting to sort of mobilize to kind of tell the world about it. So I haven't seen it yet, but it's still pretty early and I anticipate that we will. We certainly are. I think this week is when we're kind of getting our you know main press releases and stuff out. So I anticipate to see some bump shortly. So I know that IntegraCare is involved in an interesting hotel conversion project in Maryland with reliable companies. You know, I, I I saw this project in the news, I think, a few weeks ago in a local news publication. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, I don't see as many senior living companies doing hotels specifically for adaptive reuse. We do see some, but each project sort of in that realm seems like its own unique opportunity. And it seems like maybe this is one of those cases. So why did IntegraCare decide that this hotel conversion was worth doing for senior living? And I guess just tell me more about, you know, what this project will entail. 
So the, the project is the conversion of a hotel in Solomon's Island, Maryland, from a hotel to senior housing, ILAL memory care. It's Solomon's Island is about 45 minutes south, 40 minutes south of Annapolis. Uh, it's a terrific area. It's integral care country. We've got three other communities that are sort of in that, you know, in that general area. And so it fits our cluster strategy well. It's going to, it's the hotel is in three buildings. It has 326 units total plus a convention center. And we're going to combine those units from hotel rooms into, you know, one bedrooms and two bedrooms and convert them to convention center to a total of about 170 units total. And the reason why we did it, we see a lot of kind of hotel conversion opportunities come across, most of which we say no to. Uh, but, you know, the gates that we take any project, but particularly, you know, one like this through is one, does it fit our company strategy? Two, does it serve a market need? Can the projected project economics deliver? You know, and is this something we can be proud of? And this one really hit all of those marks. On the strategy, you know, we as a company have a strategy to grow by two to three communities per year over the next five years, which is enough growth to keep things interesting, but not so much as to really kind of stress out the organization or, or you know, significantly hurt our existing communities. We are currently in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia, and that's where we're going to stay. Uh, we're going to, we're not going to Ohio and we're not going to West Virginia and we're not going to New, you know, New Jersey or Delaware, even within Pennsylvania and Virginia, there are places where you know, we're not going to go because we want to keep a very compact footprint. And uh, and there's lots of good operational reasons why essentially we want to, you know, to build density within our existing uh, geographies rather than extend out our geographies. And this this project hit that one that you know quite well. We do ILAL memory care. We're not going to do skilled nursing and we're not going to do active adult. And again, this is this is what this was about. So from a strategic standpoint, this project you know fit well a number of the boundaries that we have put around our company strategically. On the market need, I, I've had some opportunity to, you know, to work doing market analysis and market feasibility. We took a look in the market. This is a great market. And, uh, and we feel good that there's, there's a couple good competitors in the market, but we feel like we're going to hit the mark pretty well. And there's a lot to like both demand wise and supply wise about it. On, uh, you know, the project economics, you know, that's where conversions can oftentimes really shine because you're taking a building that's already there and, you know, you're, you, a lot of the costs are sunk costs with it. And so we've got in this one, we do not need to be doing that much work to it to convert it. And so, so we have the opportunity to come in at a really attractive basis. Now, that's not always the true case with hotel conversions. But in this case, our basis is going to be quite attractive in it. You know, the last thing is like, do, is this a building that you want to be associated with, which is where many hotel conversions fail? because they end up looking like hotels, right? Well, this one, we're going to be able to significantly kind of physically reposition it. The building envelope, we're going to, you know, to be able to, you know, to make look good like a senior housing. And then inside, there's just all kinds of space to play with, you know, all kinds of square footage of stuff. So oftentimes when you're building something from the ground up, you're constantly shaving square feet to see if you can save a little bit cost to here or there. We don't have to do that here because the footprint is set. And uh, so, for example, one fun thing that we're doing is an idea that came from a friend of mine in our in in our industry, uh, Lori Alford uh, with Avanti. I yes. uh, visited one of her communities not too long ago, and she has a day spa in in her community where it's like the Ritz Carlton, right? You walk up and a desk there, and there's you know marble top and somebody waiting, and to the left is a uh, you know a yoga studio and an activity, and to the right is the uh, uh, you know is a massage room, and you've got the 
hairdresser behind it. So like, it's a day spa, right? <laughs> so that's great. Let's, let's go do something like that in Solomon's Island. So we've got, I forget how many square feet dedicated to this thing, but it's, we are lavishing the, the, the space in the, uh, you know, the money on making, putting in essentially a day spa in our building, which is, is not something you can typically do. Uh, you know, think right, think Ritz Carlton Day Spa on this. And that's, that's, that'll give you a picture of what we want to do here. So that, that'll be fun to, fun to go make work on this. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. I'm glad you name dropped uh, Lori Alford. Uh, she's been on this podcast before, so I'm sure our listeners are very familiar. Uh, yeah, that that sounds interesting. And I think you you mentioned some of this in there already. But so you say you say no to a lot of hotel projects, and I hear you know I hear this uh, from operators a lot and for people that are trying to do some of these projects, where it's like there are a lot of opportunities to do this, but not many actual physical locations where you can make this work and all the you know as to your point, check all your boxes. So obviously, I think this differs from company to company and sort of what you're looking for in the market. But when you when you look at all these opportunities that come across your desk, what are some of the things that you like? And then and then what are the things that you look at that say? I mean, for, you know, to your point example earlier, uh, when you said you don't want to be associated with some some names, some hotels, that makes sense to me. So you know, I guess what what would put a project in your you know what's what's a pro for a project, and then what what are your cons as you look at these hotel projects? Well, leaving, leaving aside the stuff I said about kind of does it fit our strategy and is there a market need, right? Because those are all baseline. I think that the the biggest challenge with most hotel conversions is just like the building, will that building end up looking decent? Oftentimes, you know, you can do what you think feels like a conversion, but it still looks and feels like a hotel, right? The hallways read hotel, they, you know, the, the widths of them aren't right and the common areas aren't, aren't right and, you know, the bathrooms are, you know, aren't, aren't senior friendly. And ultimately, it's the classic sort of lipstick on a pig thing. It just, it, it looks pretty, pretty beat. There's probably a place for it. Well, anyway, it's not a good look. And uh, then I think particularly with, that's true with a lot of particularly like the limited service hotels and stuff like that. The other challenge with conversion is that oftentimes, particularly with older hotels, you, they require a lot more contingency in the project budget. Because, you know, when you open up a wall, you don't know what you're going to find, right, in some of these older places. And, you know, it's one thing to hand a subcontractor a set of plans on a, on a new build and say, hey, build what's here. It's another thing to basically put a sub in a building, open up a wall, and essentially you're opening yourself up to change orders. You know, then the, the notion, negotiating lever changes completely, you know, in, in the project where the sub says, oh, well, you know, nobody expected this. And, and so just costs start to balloon in those types of situations, you have much more predictability when you're kind of doing something from the ground up. So it, it's got to be kind of a, a really good opportunity to make it worthwhile to to do a hotel renovation because of both those factors. As you were talking, it strikes me how often you see former pizza huts <laughs> <laughs> that still look like like, like like pizza huts. And that's a great example. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that, that is. <laughs> I'm thinking a place right down the street from me. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, so I want I want to talk with you about technology. Obviously, a topic that I think a lot of people are focused on these days, given the the amount of, of people using different technology and and the usefulness of it. So how how are you using technology these days? And 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 I I say this with the knowledge that I think a lot of operators right now are experimenting with some cool stuff. I've seen many more robots, I think, in senior living than I have in, in my entire career covering this industry. So what what do you see on the technology side that's that's exciting to you these days, and what are you using in your communities? Technology. I think near term, there are two initiatives, maybe three, that we are doing. Longer term, there are several interesting things we've got going, but let me, I guess, describe the near term ones. One is that Call bells are really important to our you know, company, and 
And we recently invested in a call bell system on steroids in one of our communities. And I'm really excited to see it. Six months from now, I'll let you know how it goes. That's not robots, but it's, I think there's a lot of power to that type of networked capability in a, in a community. I think too, again, this isn't robots, but dur- during, um, during COVID, we were so focused on infection control and staffing and driving census that we lost some discipline on the business side of things, things like expense management in particular, you know, expenses just ballooned. And so we're putting better tools into the hands of executive directors to manage their business, you know, business intelligence systems, things like that. And because, you know, because the margin matters, we need to recover margin in, in, in what we're doing here. We are exploring some labor saving technologies in dining and housekeeping, but nothing yet worth talking about. So nothing particularly sort of charismatic among those three from, from what you were saying. Longer term, I do see two possibilities uh, of things we're, you know, I think slowly working on. We are working with Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon University is just down the road from our headquarters in Pittsburgh. And uh, we're working with them on some robotic technologies to help caregivers. It's less about labor savings and more about eliminating some of the scungiest parts of the job, the peri-care stuff. You know, our hope is to broaden the pool of people willing to work in our industry. If they don't have to do this, you know, the scuddiest stuff, maybe there will be more people who want to do the good stuff, which is which is the incredibly <laughs> enjoyable things of aspects of working with seniors, right? So, so that's one thing. That's not going to happen in the next two years, but it's not ten years away. It's it's you know it's medium term. And then, secondly, I think I see some possibilities, some good possibilities in independent living for adopting many of the age at home technologies that you know Silicon Valley is is coming up with. But again, it probably nothing nothing is advanced enough for me to sort of brag about it here right now. That is very interesting, uh, and I, I look forward to learning a little bit more about both of those initiatives as you uh, get a little bit farther down the road. So I want to spend the last little part of our discussion today talking about the future with you. To start with, you know, typically this is, or so I hear, for a lot of operators, this is typically when you start to build your occupancy for the year. You know, these are the, these are the months when you, you start to really convert move-ins. These are when people really start moving into your communities. You build occupancy. You know, obviously, with this with this pandemic, I, I have heard that normal seasonality can can be a little difficult to predict these days. So, I wanted to ask you, as you look ahead to sort of what is normally a a pretty decent stretch of months ahead for occupancy, what are you seeing? Uh, you know, do, do you see that that seasonal demand here, or are things different with this pandemic? And if so, you know, what do you see ahead? I think barring any sort of major externalities, I think we've got a good solid run census-wise, you know, for the next six months ahead of us. As much challenge as we have, our biggest competitors is, you know, people staying at home with home health care, at least in assisted living and memory care. And those home health guys are suffering a lot from staffing shortages as much as we are. In many ways, they are, you know, less reliable to call-offs than, or less resilient to call-offs than, you know, than our community-based services are. So, so I think, I think, I think they're suffering as well. And I think, uh, you know, I hear of skilled nursing facilities that are closing wings because they don't have staff. So all that drives people into our building. Rural sources tell me they need good senior housing because you know, those other places aren't reliable. So I think all that is bodes well, you know, uh, along with the sort of normal seasonal aspect of the business. That said, I think that there is more downside risk than upside. I think, you know, this COVID resurgence is troubling. I think, you know, the housing market is, is you know, perhaps rickety right now and, and inflation, you know, causes lots of corrosive aspects to it. So uh, 
but no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more optimistic than not. Yeah, you make a good point with with COVID cases. Uh, we're seeing those rise again. Uh, unfortunately, as much as we all, I think, like to hope that we are past all of this, it seems like uh, at least it seems like there may be another wave ahead of us. How much does that worry you? On the one hand, you know, obviously, if things get bad again, uh, you know, we could slide back in terms of recovery. On the other hand, I think the industry seemingly did a pretty decent job during the last major surge. And I think you can make a pretty good argument that the industry just knows more about COVID these days and is much more effective in dealing with it. So um, I guess, yeah, as you look ahead with regard to COVID cases, how do you feel and how worried are you? I think the good news is that we all learned a lot, you know, over the last couple of years and we're better prepared and we know how to manage teams and manage residents and, you know, families and we've got our PPE. I do think that the one important change from before is regulatory, which is it used to be, you know, you get a couple of cases in your building, you have to shut everything down. And uh, now that's not the case. I think the, the impact of having to shut visitation in buildings, to have people stuck in buildings, that was just devastating to census in our, in our communities. And we still continue with the after effects of that in terms of the eyes of the consumer, even though we're not having to do that anymore. I think there is still that fear that when people see COVID around, the residents say, well, I don't want to be stuck in one of those senior communities. I saw on NBC News what it was like to be stuck and inside the building and families couldn't visit. And, you know, you see the families knocking on the window and looking longingly in at the building. I mean, like that just, that's just, that memory sticks with people for a while. So I think that there will be some, some challenges with that. I think the other worry I have is, one, is that cases among team members are rising and that both compounds the staffing challenges that we've got because they have to call out if they're sick, you know, and it's just more of this, more of the kind of same stress associated with that. The other is, I think uh, I've been very blessed with capital partners who have been great throughout COVID. I mean, they just, they've had resources and understanding and asked me what I need. And so I've been very lucky that way. I think they are getting COVID fatigue. I think they look around and they see everyone with masks off and, and they say, you know, COVID's in the rear view mirror now. But, you know, at the communities, we're still dealing with it. We're still dealing with, it, still dealing with the call-offs and the need to protect people and the consumer impact. And so I think that I worry a little bit about expectations, at, you know, racing ahead of the reality of kind of where we are from COVID's place in the industry. Yeah. You mentioned this a little bit ago, but uh, something else that I've heard more people talk about these days is a recession. Yeah, I think I think there's lots of varying opinions here on on the macroeconomics of everything. Obviously, though, there are some some things I think that the industry takes a, a really close look at. Housing prices, obviously, you know, the fact that residents typically use their home equity to fund a move into senior living that is obviously a focus. Um, you mentioned things like inflation, you know, just the cost of goods and services. So I guess, and, and you know, we we actually just ran a story on senior housing news about sort of some industry opinions about a recession. But but I guess what is on your worry list in terms of a recession and how do you think what we're seeing now uh, would affect the senior living industry if it, I don't know, got worse? I don't really know how to, sometimes I don't know yeah. the right words to use when uh, talking about a recession. But Yeah, I, I read the recession article that you wrote in Senior Housing News and I thought you pretty well analyzed, you know, analyzed the situation and the pros and the cons, mostly the cons, but, you know, there are some some things. So I, th- I think you you analyzed it well. I mean, to me, a recession, you're talking about a recession, it's kind of like talking about the weather. You know, it's, to me, it's only interesting to the extent that you can do something about it. You know, should I bring an umbrella? 
you know, do I clean out my downspouts? And, and so the question to me is, you know, what should we be doing here now to prepare for a recession if and when it comes? I think, you know, for example, you know, I think a recession would be more of an IL problem than an AL and memory care problem because of the whole housing sale thing. What do I do to prepare? You know, <laughs> now that I think about it, I probably should call up, you know, Elias Papasavas at Second Act and say, you know, Elias, some of my customers are probably going to need, you know, some sort of uh, some sort of bridge loan to get through until uh, you know, they can sell their home. So I think that's one way to prepare. I think, you know, a recession means less consumer spending in general, right, on things like dining out. So you may have some dining workforce that's being liberated. And, uh, you know, I, I think you probably should prepare a pitch to cooks that are suddenly being cut back and cooks at restaurants who are being cut back on their hours talking about what a much better quality of life it is to cook in a senior housing community than it is to work, you know, nights and weekends at some, at some restaurant. So, uh, so, you know, I think, I think there may be some cooks, particularly as their hours are getting cut back that may be receptive to that. So I think, I think those are the types of things you do to prepare, but you know, the recessions will come and go and we just kind of have to deal with it like storms that, you know, that, that blow through. I have a sort of a follow up. Uh, you mentioned earlier talking about staffing a little bit. Um, I actually was was curious to know. I was just at an industry conference, uh, Argentum, the Senior Living Executive Conference in Minneapolis, and one of the things I kept hearing was that the senior living industry is essentially operators are trading workers with one another. The the industry is circulating workers, and that in order to grow the the workforce. Workers from outside the industry will need to come into it, and and there will need to be net gains basically every year of new workers coming in to grow the workforce. Obviously, easier said than done. How do you think that the industry can attract new people to come into the workforce? To your point, you know, as cooks are finding themselves out of work at you know maybe the hotel or the restaurant where they worked, how do you then bring them into the senior living industry when they didn't work here before? Oh, that that is a great question and one that I could probably go on and on about more than than you have time. I I, I think I will tag a couple things. One is I think that there is a role for states in training workforce for industries like this. So the situation, you know, the, 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 to some degree, there's a first mover disadvantage to a senior housing operator that goes out and tries to attract people into the industry. So if I take somebody, you know, who's worked in retail and say, come on over and work in senior housing, you know, and I spend a whole lot of time and effort to train them up and, you know, show them how to, how to care for residents and show them the culture and all of that. Once I've trained them up, it is easy for them to move over to a competitor for you know, a slightly higher wage. I've invested the time and effort in that, but then the, my competitor gets the benefit. In many ways, it's a lot better. It's a lot more economic for me to go poach staff that a competitor has trained up, right? So there's a classic sort of first mover disadvantage uh, to that. The right thing to do is to have a, an entity that kind of works across all providers, right, to be able to train it up. And the natural ones are are, you know, the states with their workforce development. So in Pennsylvania, we have a we have a really good senior housing uh, association called, uh, there's several of them, but one of them is on uh, perhaps the most active is the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, uh, which is doing a lot to uh, drive workforce development at the state level. And it, the nice thing about this issue is it's a, it's a bipartisan issue. Uh, both red representatives and blue representatives can get behind training the workforce. So that's, there's a lot of things that you can do there. I think that there is, I think some of the things Argentum is doing to go try to create certification in the industry and train people up. They've got a Department of Labor grant that I have not gotten an update on recently, but in terms of apprenticeships that I would love to, I I have on my list of things to do to give them a call and find out what's going on in that. Uh, I think that that the associations also play, have a role 
to play in that. And then the last thing I think is that there's certain aspects of the job which um, just drive people away. And and one of them, as I mentioned, is pericare. And if we can get the, the pericare being, you know, wiping butts. And uh, if we can get the some of that out of the work, out of the job, right, requirement uh, through things like robotics and so forth, we can then, you know, have people drawn to, you know, the fact that, hey, look, you could work at Sheets, right, you know, and stand behind a cash register all day, or you could, you know, have human contact taking care of senior citizens. So, like, the, the, the latter is a much easier thing to sell as long as you don't have to, you know, you know yeah, as long as you can get over some of the, um, the you know, the rougher parts of the, of the job task. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're coming up on, on sort of the end of our time here, but I want to give you one last chance here to tout what's ahead for Integra Care. So uh, we've talked, I think, uh, about a lot of this today already, but what, what is ahead for Integra Care in terms of growth? How are you all growing? Maybe lay out some projects you feel excited about and just what other big initiatives are you working on in 2022? What will we see next? Mm-hmm. Big initiatives. So I guess first we have a few properties that are underperforming their potential and, uh, and I personally spend a lot of time with my team working, you know, on those properties to get them where they need to go. So uh, that's one thing. Uh, second is, you know, we're working hard to get the hourly staffing stuff right. I mean, that lack of hourly staffing is at the root of so many problems. And we're examining every assumption that we have. And partly it's about wages, but there's a lot of other stuff that you can do to, uh, you know, to improve things. Um, there's a lot of friction that goes into the hiring process from the job posting to the application to the COVID and drug testing to the background checks, to the job offer, like at every step of the way, there's friction and delay, the training. And at each step of those, we lose candidates. And one of the principles of good operations is to create flow. And so that's what we're trying to do is to, is to kind of streamline the flow of applicants into our jobs and getting them trained up. That's part of sort of a broader philosophy we have at the company. I mean, Toyota transformed manufacturing with its, its lean approach, you know, a generation ago and Walmart and FedEx have transformed logistics with, with their focus on flow. And 20 years ago, I got into this industry in part because I wanted to do for senior housing what Toyota and Walmart did for their industries. And they deliver high quality, affordable products, you know, by bringing superb operating discipline. And that's our goal at IntegraCare. And I'm, I'm, I am blessed by senior leadership that shares my passion for this stuff for Six Sigma, for Kaizen, for Flow, the three-dimensional focus that I talked about. We have probably five years of projects that are stacked up that will make us increasingly distinctive in this stuff. But we have to be judicious. We can't cram all of our bright ideas down on the community teams right away. We can't, as the saying goes, you can't chase two rabbits, right? You have to pick a few things and do them very well. So early on among these kind of challenges, we are, or these opportunities, we are focused on improving call bell responses across uh, all of our communities. Great. Well, well, fi- five years of initiatives, five years of coverage to, to read about on Senior Housing News for our listeners. So there's there's where you'll see it. All right. Well, Larry Ravalis, that's all the time we have for today. So um, thank you so much for coming on Transform. I feel like this was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. So thank you for coming on. Tim, I enjoyed it a lot. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. Visit Senior Housing News to view this year's winners. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.